Hello, and welcome back to We Are the Weirdos, Mister, the podcast for all things cult, camp, queer, and creepy. I'm your host, Hillary Michelle Post, and I am thrilled to welcome not just one, but two special co-hosts. Um, let me first welcome back my dear sister, Lacey Mason. Yo. And joining us for the first time is our dear friend, Jeremy Foster. Hi, but when you gave that description, cult camp weird and creepy, I'm just like, wow, that should be my middle name. (laughs) Yeah. Let's see. What are we talking about today? Okay. Today we will be discussing one of my favorite movies, uh, the 1998 Todd Haynes film, Velvet Goldmine. Um, Velvet Goldmine is a lovingly bizarre, highly stylized glam rock musical love story that is heavily inspired by the early career of David Bowie and the 70s glam rock scene in general. Um, It really takes a lot of different events and people and music and mixes it all together into this very fantastical thing. So you clearly see the references it's making, but it shouldn't be seen like a direct biopic or anything. Um, And it actually received backlash from critics who tried to take it too literally. But there's this great quote from a critic who was defending it. I forget who said this now, but he said, eschewing Velvet Goldmine for an accurate depicting of glam rock is like criticizing Wizard of Oz for misrepresenting Kansas. Boom. (laughs) Yeah, I think that perfectly summarizes the level of fantasy we are going with this movie. It's, it's a lot. (laughs) Um, I first saw this when I was probably 14. So 13, 14. Do you remember when you guys first saw it? About the same. (laughs) About the same. (laughs) Yeah. I was was probably like 15. I was trying to remember how old you were because 98, 99. I saw it <clears throat> on the Sundance Film Channel when I was probably a senior. So that would have been 99, 2000. So Lacey, yeah. you would have been 17? 16, 16, 17, 17 yeah. And I, can't, I couldn't remember how old Hillary is. So how I was you... shocked to hear that it took that long. Like that there were that many years between when I would have seen it when she'd have seen it. Yeah, well the only way I came to that number is doing math from I first saw Moulin Rouge, and that is what made me obsessed with Hugh McGregor, which then made me seek out every Hugh McGregor movie, which led me to Velvet Goldmine. I think I so assumed Moulin you watched Rouge... it with us, and that we started a whole thing. Oh, no, I watched it on my own. Yeah, because um, yeah, I was basically going through Hugh McGregor's IMDb and watching everything, and um, I got Velvet Goldmine at... Uh, at leisure time. Really? And then shortly That's after. Yeah. And, you used to get it too, I bet. Yeah. And I remember, I must have said it somewhere in conversation. And Jeremy's like, you have seen that movie? Why did you see that movie? <laughs> yeah. I probably didn't imagine that a 14-year-old would be watching a movie with Ewan McGregor's wing-wang flopping around. <laughs> <laughs> she probably I'm shouldn't not, have been, but hey. I, oh, of course not. 
I very but, distinctly remember I was sitting on my bed in my old bedroom. I think I was like folding laundry or something. I was at the very edge of the bed. And while I was watching it, and when that happened, I literally fell off my bed. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, whoop, on the floor, scrambling to grab the remote to rewind it. Well, obviously, Lacey and I didn't have a problem with you seeing it because then we watched it again with you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's all right. I am. Um, that was, it was a good introduction to Ewan McGregor because. He gets naked in a lot of his movies. Like, that, him flopping around on stage is, like, the least sexual context in which I end up seeing his wiener. I've seen that man (laughs) naked. (laughs) He's a big proponent of, like, women have to get naked in film all the time, so I think I should, too. So, Well, younger people probably only remember him from Star Wars, you know, and he plays a goody-goody... Obi-Wan Kenobi and you don't really imagine Obi-Wan Kenobi standing on a stage doing the helicopter with his hoo-ha. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, train spotting Ewan McGregor and Velvet Goldmine Ewan McGregor are definitely not Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> no. <laughs> Ewan McGregor. Yeah, so back to Velvet Goldmine before I, I got <laughs> started talking about Ewan McGregor's wiener and my brain just... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we can just kind of go through kind of chronologically what happens in the movie try to at least are you getting this too jeremy what does it sound all messed up oh yeah talking. there's quite a quite a bit of feedback you got your phone near your thing not not near me here let me chuck it across the room <laughs> there you go <laughs> oh, <my mic>. oh. <laughs> I love what you're about to read. This is my one of my favorite. Like it pulls me, and I'm like, oh, okay. Go ahead. Let me try that again. Sorry. I hope my microphone picked up the loud thud of my phone. It did. Literally. Totally. <laughs> anyway, at the top of the movie, there's text that reads, "Although what you are about to see is a work of fiction, it should nevertheless be played at maximum volume." Which. Uh. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. However, (laughs) I think it does a good job at like setting up that you're about to see something very stylized and weird. I just always thought that you were about to rock. Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. that too. (laughs) That too. But just like the way it phrases it is like emphasizes this is a work of fiction. Yeah. um, That you invest in it. It's kind of like. Baz Luhrmann films, he talks about how at the very top of his the movies that are in his like Red Curtain trilogy, they kind of make you sign a contract with the film and the viewer where it's like this isn't your typical film. This isn't real life. This is a theatrical experience. You know what I mean? Um, I can see that in... I kind of, I'm kind of on like Lacey's court. Like the soundtrack is so important to that film because they use the songs to highlight particular moments in the film. And mm-hmm. I actually, I didn't go back and rewatch the movie, but I went back and listened to the soundtrack. I was actually listening to the soundtrack when Lacey mentioned doing this. Um, but I was really sad because the soundtrack now that you can get isn't the original songs from the film with the people singing it from the film. It's like the actual 
artist for the song Aww. and it's just not the Aww. same at all because it, it the the music with the film is kind of an experience it's almost like uh, the rocky horror picture show like yes. no one but no one wants to listen to sweet transvestite without tim curry's voice you know right so yeah it's kind of the same with that film i think yeah and it's one of those interesting where you can call it a musical but it's not really not in the the typical sense like the music helps tell the story but it's not where it's not like the story stops so people can perform a song that explains what's going on you know yes because function in a different way I love this movie, which means it must not be a musical. Because I'm going to say it. I'm not a musical fan. I can't sit through them. No, I, get I don't bored. believe it. No, I'm not going to say there aren't any that I like. But ask him. I Nope. <laughs> you know she doesn't <laughs> like musicals from our trips to Columbus for... Uh, oh, God. What was it even called? Uh, they did it oh, on Sundays. We, we would always go. Yeah. Yeah, the show tunes. <clears throat> yeah, show tunes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're trying to play share tunes, and she's like, "Play some share." <laughs> share. That was my fault, though, because I wanted them to do uh, "Dark Lady," and they didn't want to do "Dark Lady" because it's not a musical. And I think, if I remember correctly, Lacey was telling him that I had cancer. No, I told I was... him, yeah, or one of us was like dying of cancer or AIDS yeah. or something. I'm like, I got a week. Oh, Can you just play the song that I want to hear? Please? Jesus, yeah, was... I don't remember that. I do. Those <laughs> bastards never played it either. I never played Thanks it. Thanks a lot, Union Cafe. <laughs> Could have died an unhappy man. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, so after we see that text at the top, um, we see the first scene is kind of suggesting extraterrestrial origins. I completely of forgot about wild. that. It, I was like, what is, what is this? Todd Haynes says said that like glam rock was the first to kind of align alien and extraterrestrial with queerness. So he like tried to literalize that in taking this queer icon, Oscar Wilde, and giving him you know alien origins and um, the the little. Basically, what? It's like a straight-up UFO, correct? I'm not making that up. Yes, you see yeah. a UFO. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it ostensibly leaves baby Oscar Wilde on the doorstep of his parents' home with a little green pin, this little green brooch attached. And then that green pin goes on to symbolize, I guess symbolize just not, not just Oscar Wilde's influence, but like icon status uh-huh it travels from person to person yeah and i think that's also a play and, and i unfortunately don't really know a lot about david bowie but <clears throat> i think that's also a play on david bowie's kind of alter ego ziggy stardust because wasn't he also mm-hmm. uh portraying himself as like a like an alien type spaceman yeah, yeah. and yeah. that's a theme that like bowie used a lot like he mm-hmm. every generation of Bowie listeners has like a different Bowie. So you have your Ziggy Stardust Bowie, you have your Thin White Duke, etc, etc. Um, but... Labyrinth Package <laughs> Bowie. <laughs> yeah. Grandma Post! I'm sorry. It's who he reminds me of. 
Your grandma? Lacey, yeah. I swear. Like old, old, old David Bowie. There's this one, I remember him standing, he's got like a mullet, and he's got like a white suit, and I'm like, holy grandma post. Oh my god, now that you mention that, you are absolutely correct. Oh my god, everybody shut the fuck up and don't ruin David Bowie for me. You're never going to look at that package again. Oh god. Why why do you always do this? It's a sickness I have. It really is. It's a sickness I have. Before I think about seeing anybody's wiener, I'm like, okay, do you remind me of anybody that I'm related to? Do you remind me of one of my grandparents? <laughs> <laughs> and if the answer is yes, it still might not be a no. <laughs> Jesus wept. <laughs> but yeah, and I think it's important to point out that the... the, the okay, so... The Oscar Wildcat, what always confused me about Velvet Goldmine was the back and forth between not just the characters, but the actors. Because you go back and forth between Christian Bale and Jonathan Rice Myers. And when I first watched it the first time, I thought they were the same person for a while. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, really? I didn't rewatch it. So they, they give you Jonathan Rice Myers first. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, yeah. So- Oh, you mean like as wild... kids, like the confusing thing? That was yeah. You okay. Yeah. No, 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 no. The little kid thing. We see the Oscar Wilde as a little kid. Then we see Jack Ferry as a little kid. Right. Yes. Oh. Yes, Jack Ferry. Yeah. And then Arthur. Jack Ferry. And... Uh... Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. You see Jack Ferry. You see him getting bullied. And then he finds the green pin in the gutter. Um, uh, and then and I always thought that was Christian Bale. So did I. I yeah, was that, very confused by that until this time he, I watched it. Yeah, the narrator says it's Jack Ferry. I That's see. how you know. And just a sidebar: that little boy that plays young Jack Ferry is the same little boy as the beginning of Titus. No shit, Anthony. Yeah, same little boy. Um. Then we see Arthur. And his friends, the band, the Flaming Creatures, running down the streets of London. They're uh, heading to um, Brian's show. And we also see Jack Ferry, like, amongst the kids. He's walking through the neighborhood, too. And there, you know, some kids are like, oh, you know, that's that Jack Ferry. Um, other kids are like, who the fuck's Jack Ferry? <laughs> um, which is good symbolism of, like... David Bowie and Brian Slade as an extension of character steals from everybody. Mm-hmm. And Jack Ferry is supposed to be, that's why we see him when he's little, because he's like the, f- the first original. Um, mm. the his first character original. is, yeah, his oh. character is supposed to be like a mixture of Brian, Eno, Brian Ferry and little Richard. Mm-hmm. And he's fashion icon, to be honest. Like, everything he wears in the movie, I'm just like, yes. I want to be that creepy vamp with the giant hat walking amongst the children. I'm also impressed by that opening scene of all these poor young actors running full speed in platforms. <laughs> and they only eat shit a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> just a couple just a couple <laughs> gosh I forgot um, 
Yeah. Maybe I should have rewatched it. <clears throat> I said to myself, I've seen this movie so many times. I, I know, that's what I said. It. I'm telling you, that's why I had to watch it twice in a couple of days. There's so much. There's so, there's so many little things. Um, so the kids arrive at the concert, and it's our first sighting of Brian Slade, who is our David Bowie character, essentially. Um, played by Jonathan Rhys Meyer, mm. who was only 19 at the time. Mm. He was the youngest of all of them. They were all pretty young, but he was only 19. And delicious. He's so beautiful. <laughs> Meh. Like, Meh. Lacey, you're I'm only shit. attracted to one person in this movie, and it does not have a penis. Um, really? Really. Except, no, let me go back and say that you and McGregor did something to, to my bottom that never happened when I was younger. <laughs> I'm like digging this whole like the whole 20th century boy like Kurt Cobain look. Oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, oh, he, okay. He did look so much like Kurt Cobain. Mm-hmm. That it was really mm-hmm. crazy how much he looked like Kurt Cobain. Mm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, back to Jonathan Rice Myers. <laughs> I can't believe you don't think you don't even think he's handsome when he got older. After his the only time I like him is in the first scene where you see him singing at the sombrero and he's got the, the long hair and the half naked natural looking mm. top. That's the oh. only time. Mm. But you can tell he's 19. He is all kind. He needs some proactive up in there. <laughs> That's all I noticed this time. I never noticed it before, but I'm like, ooh. It's the TV. It's like 75 inches in HD. And- <laughs> Imagine how big his wiener was on my TV. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you're into Tony Collette. Oh, God, yes. Even Sam was like, holy shit. Like, uh uh-huh. It's Tony Collette. Mandy, his wife. Oh, okay. Yep, yep. Yeah. I got you. I've always had it for her, though. Yeah. They dated in real life, too. Tony and Jonathan Rees-Meyer. They look good together, naked. Rolling around, huh? <laughs> Jelly. <laughs> uh, so at Brian's concert, uh, he makes his grand entrance, and then we see him be shot by uh, some shady figure in the back of the theater. And there's chaos, and you know the whole crowd thinks, "Holy shit! Brian Slade has just been assassinated." Um, and this is an homage to David Bowie, not. Literally, David Bowie didn't literally do this. However, um, that was part of the Ziggy Stardust mythos. That Ziggy Stardust became so famous that he ended up being destroyed. Mm-hmm. And um, on in seventy three, it was like July third, nineteen seventy three, at the end of his concert at the Hammersmith in London. Um, Bowie made this surprise announcement to everybody that it would be the Spiders from Mars's last concert. And nobody knew he was going to say that, including the band. Oh. <laughs> nobody knew he was going to say that. Yeah. Um, they were filming it for, like, a documentary film, too, fortunately. But, like, his wife didn't know he was going to say that. The band didn't know he was going to say that. I don't even think his management knew. So he basically committed suicide to the Ziggy Stardust character. On stage in front of everybody. It's just like, not only is this the last show of our tour, it's our last show ever. Bye! Mm. 
<laughs> Everyone was kind well, of that like, would have been the, the same happened. year, essentially, then that oh, uh, Brian Slade did this. 73. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. And then it, the movie cuts to like a newsreel type deal that kind of gives us the exposition of who Brian Slade is. It's a very much like a Citizen Kane moment where we're given all this information real quickly. Um, we see that who Brian Slade is as a musician. Um, we kind of get a summation of how glam and glitter and queerness has become mainstream and popular. Uh, this is the first time we see Ewan McGregor as Kurt Wilde. He's doing like an interview real quick. Um, and at the end of that film reel is where you find out that the shooting was a hoax. And now everyone's pissed. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is and, like uh, everybody is saying that they're they're like bi and all that jazz during that scene, right? Yeah. Yeah. Ewan McGregor says a lot of these... Um, what does he say? Something along the lines of it's very cool to say that you're yeah. bisexual right now, but if you're going to say you're gay, you have to have make love and gay style, and most of these kids are going to do it. Yeah. Um, which is, is almost in the, in a direct quote from Lou Reed. Lou Reed said something almost exactly like that once. And I remember watching that. So when I first saw this movie, it, it was very shortly after we got not cable, but satellite for the first time. And prior to that, we had like three television channels, two of which were the same, and the other was PBS. So <laughs> when we got satellite and I started watching the Sundance channel, every now and then there'd be a gay-themed movie on, and this was one of them. When people would say stuff like that, being from Morgan County, where there is zero, zero gay culture, when someone says something like that in a movie, I'm just like, oh, my God, yeah. at the time. Yeah. So I remember when he was saying that, I'm just like, oh, my God, this guy's famous, and he's in this movie, and he's saying <laughs> that, and everyone's cool with it? Oh, my God. And I think that's that's part of the reason why that movie was such a big deal for me when I was younger, is scenes like that yeah. where they're just like, yeah, it's cool to be bisexual. <laughs> it was good yeah, stuff. same. I wasn't even out yet, really. Um, I didn't really come out until like the end of senior year. But I was into, before I even saw this movie, I was already into David Bowie and um, that whole era for that very reason. Because, you know, it was cool to be queer. And I loved that. I was like, God, I wish I was alive then. <laughs> and, you know, in London and not Morgan County. Um <laughs> 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 you like, would have been a true dandy yeah a mod uh, yeah yeah i <laughs> would have been Mandy. i would have been made i basically was i would have been with i would have been queer and been with some queer boy and everything would have been great <laughs> well not but great you, it turned out great for mandy but <laughs> you know what's cool for you though <clears throat> is that your mom probably could have walked in when we were watching that movie and not had any problem with it whatsoever Whereas other oh, yeah. people's parents <laughs> definitely would have had a problem with the velvet. Oh yeah, out. I just I distinctly remember seeing that, watching that movie, and I'm pretty sure after I watched it, I came out of my room and was like, "Mom, I just saw Ewan McGregor's uh, wiener." <laughs> 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 she was just like, 
okay. <laughs> she probably we really looked did good. have a, a, a relaxing home to be in. And everybody knew that you could just be yourself, whether that was good, bad, ugly, gay, straight, yeah. horny. It didn't why matter. You, why do you think I hung out there all the time? <laughs> everybody just walk, did. <laughs> just walk in and be like, hey, Lacey's mom, I kissed a dude today. Woo! And she was yeah. out there. I'm going to go pop some kielbasa in the microwave. We'll talk uh, yeah. I'm going to eat two pounds of sausage and deep throat it, or pretend to deep throat it in your living room while, while watching gay themed movies with your 14 year old daughter. <laughs> Six 15 year old girls sitting in the living room, deep throating big old giant pickles. <laughs> Well, she knows she can do it better than every single one of us the entire time. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, man. I hope mom listens to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> anyway. So, after, anywho, um, at this point, the film cuts to 1984 New York, and we see adult Arthur. Christian Bale's character. Um, he works for a newspaper that wants to do a 10-year anniversary article about the shooting hoax and figure out, you know, whatever happened to Brian Slade afterwards. Um, and they want Arthur to do the article, but he's reticent to do it because he was... They don't realize how deep into that scene he was. And for him to go into this is for him to look at his own like you know youth mm-hmm. and all the stuff he was into um and we also see the beginnings of them mentioning the uh tommy uh, stone stone i think that's mm-hmm. his name um there's a big t- uh tommy stone show coming up to new york recent here coming up soon and they want him to write the article about that too um but until that happens focus on this and Tommy Stone appears throughout the film and there's payoff for it later. Um, and then we see Arthur flashback to back into the 70s when he was a teenager in England. Um, he goes to a record store to buy Brian's album. He gets picked on by other kids his age because he's buying this album by this you know, pansy rock star. <laughs> Um, and that album that he buys with that basically centerfold portrait of Brian Slade on the cover, um, that's like a direct ripoff of an album by this artist called Jabriath. He was a seventies queer musician too. If you Google it, it's like the exact same image almost. Hmm. And I remember I had the CD soundtrack in high school, and when you open up the CD and take the disc out, that shot of Jonathan Reese Meyer all naked and spread out is in the inside of the CD. And I remember, like, I ha- I would take that CD to school with me because I'd listen to it in, okay. um, in <laughs> class. I'd listen to it in um, Crandall's class when I was working on the computer, and uh, boys, girls, everyone would want to look at that pretty picture of Jonathan Reese Meyer. Like, mm-hmm. I can't imagine why. <laughs> Can't imagine why. That was my favorite game of pulling up pictures of Jonathan Reese Meyer with long hair or Brian Molko in full makeup and being like, hey, random dude, isn't this girl pretty? And they're like, yeah, she's hot. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's a dude. 
I actually tried to find that because I used to have the the physical <clears throat> album as well, and I loved that cover. And I was trying to, I don't have it anymore, and I was trying to find that image online, and I couldn't find it anywhere. What? Uh, yeah, I don't know why. Um, I don't know. I have to try to find it like a physical copy. Someone should make a poster of that <laughs> cover. Oh, yeah. I'm surprised they haven't. <laughs> I'm too. I'm sure it exists somewhere. Someone oh. at Kinko's printing off a huge <laughs> copy of it. <laughs> Yeah, maybe I just didn't enter the right search. Oh, well. Your cat is river dancing on top of my car. What is she doing? (laughs) (laughs) I can't yell. She won't hear me. Whatever. (laughs) You can yell at her anyway. She's not going to stop. No, she won't stop. Oh, but I did look up the Jabrai picture you mentioned, and he doesn't have legs. Yeah, he's like a statue almost and stops like yeah. mid-thigh. I just found the Brian Slade one, and I found it with the Jabriath search. Oh, there you go. I was going to say, that's, I, I was going to say, I, I saw it recently. That was when I looked at that picture. Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> you like right-click save. <laughs> <laughs> it's his background now, already. Uh we see Arthur doing research for his article. Um, and we see more of the backlash of what happened after Brian's fake assassination. Um, you know, his sales dropped. People were burning his album. He got really into cocaine, which, again, is not far off from where Bowie was at this point. Um, he he never really had a huge... Um, like career backlash, but there was after Aladdin saying he did have a bit of a dip because he was using so much cocaine. Um, Mm -hmm. That's around the time his marriage with Angie Bowie ended. And like he, there was time there where he was convinced the devil lived in his swimming pool. It was a rough time. Um, (laughs) And in his research, Arthur tracks down Brian's first manager, uh, character's name is Cecil. I don't know if they ever say his last name. No, I tried to write Um, down as much as I could and I never heard it again. Yeah. Cecil is basically the movie stand-in for the real person, Ken Pitt, who was Bowie's first big manager. Um, And Arthur goes to, I I guess what we're supposed to assume is like a hospital or a hospice type place to interview Cecil. Cecil, whatever it is. Mm. Um, which I think is probably Todd Haynes just doing a subtle nod to, by this point in the 80s, how many people in the queer community were suffering from AIDS. Because That's what I always assumed. Old. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see him flashing back to talking about young Brian. Um, we see Maud era Brian. Which might be my favorite. Mine I love too. Pretty boys in suits, yeah. Oh, and that long hair. Oh, this is before the no, long hair. This is when he met. Okay, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And we see that very weird vignette of him, like seducing the schoolboy. Uh. Um. <laughs> yeah, that's disturbing. 
the creepy schoolboy scene, according to the director, he put in because it was inspired by a quote from David Bowie from an interview on Playboy, where the guy was kind of like grilling him about his bisexuality. The this one snippet is very sounds very weird out of context, but the whole interview is really uncomfortable because the person interviewing just like refuses to believe that Bowie's queer. I don't know what his deal was, mm. but he said, um, Bowie said, when I was 14, sex suddenly became all important to me. It didn't really matter who or what it was with. <laughs> weird. <laughs> who or what it was with, as long as it was a sexual experience. So it was some very pretty boy in class or some school or in some school or other that I took home and neatly fucked on my bed. Yeah. So well, maybe maybe it's not <clears throat> maybe we think it's creepy because they use the same actor, but he was technically supposed to be younger. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to think. I like maybe that schoolboy was supposed to be a teenager and like 16, 18 type situation. Or like, 14, 16, like something along, yeah. Mm. In 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 roughly the same age category. Right. Okay, that makes it a little less creepy. But yeah. they should have used a different actor. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> uh, um, then we see when um, Cecil first sees Brian, which is the scene Lacey was talking about earlier when he's performing at the Sombrero Club. Yeah, with the long this hair. is long-haired hippie, like man who sold the world to era Bowie, Brian Slade. Mm. Yeah, Google image search. Was it the man who sold the world? Man who bought the? There's a album cover of David Bowie where his long hair and is wearing a dress, and Jeez. that's a straight up Brian Slade, 100 percent in those scenes. <laughs> um, Young grandma. <laughs> it's just about to say. God, I hate you. Yeah, that that scene was really interesting to me. This is the same scene where he ta- where he's talking to his uh, gay friends about uh, Brian. Correct. Yeah. That scene was really interesting to me because they had to put in subtitles um, <clears throat> to compensate for the the like English gay or queer lingo uh, that these guys are using. And when I was younger, I thought that was odd. Like they have their own language. What is going on? <laughs> but then as I got older. And obviously hung out in the gay community more. Yeah, even we have our own language that straight people are just like, what are you talking about? Yeah. So that was that's really interesting to me in hindsight because that's like the queer lingo of the time in England. It's really yeah. fun. You yeah. could I, only get about half of it. Oh, yeah, I have no have idea them. what they were saying. No yeah. clue. I forget there's they even had a specific term for their slang because it was all about speaking in code, you know. It was cultural, but it was also so you could talk about shit that would get you arrested. Yeah. If you heard, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. I love what 
when uh, Cecil's talking about when he introduced himself to Brian afterwards, he's like, he introduced him to self. No, he introduced me to his wife, asked me what sign I was, and by the end of the week, we were signing contracts. Mm-hmm. And you see, like, a quick little, fit, like, home <coughs> movie-type footage of them rolling around in bed together. Which is like, blink if you, and you'll miss it, but... I was just gonna say, I'm... I- I must have had like a fly on the wall or something mm-hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah, you see, they show Brian and and um, Cecil naked in bed together. I can dig. I Ooh, can so it probably that. did cut Cecil a little deep when he got the shaft. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Figuratively speaking. <laughs> well, we see um, Brian performing at this like rock festival. And at this point, it's like 1970. So we're just now getting out of the, you know, flower child hippie era. And, you know, Cecil says all these people that were, you know, listening to Creedence Clearwater and the Beatles weren't really taking all that well to Brian's, you know, wearing a dress and singing Mm -hmm. his song type music. Um, His big purple frock. That's probably one of my favorite outfits, I think. Yeah. Totally. Um, so he's getting, you know, heckled on stage. The crowd isn't totally into it. And this is all these scenes, too, is when we were first seeing Mandy, um, Brian's wife, who is based on Angie Bowie. And in terms of like direct parallels, Angie Bowie to Mandy Slade is probably even more. A literal translation than even Brian Slade and David Bowie. Like Tony Collette is Angie Bowie in this movie, and it's fucking incredible. Hmm. One of my favorite books of all time is Backstage Passes by Angela Bowie. It is that woman is so interesting and such a wackadoo, and I love her <laughs> so much. <laughs> and just like a shout out to Tony Collette, who is an Australian playing an American who puts on like an, an affectation of a British accent. Mm. See, I didn't remember that. And then I'm like, I caught it. I'm like, okay, that's not how you were talking a second ago. And then I realized why she was doing it and when she was doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny listening to like old interviews with Angie Bowie. Cause she did that too. Like she would put it on and it was so obvious and just, and I love Cecil talking about how everyone just kind of like giggled about, about her behind her back but so was she doing it to poke fun or was she just doing it to be oh she was doing it to be cool mm. you know, yeah she... Like a, she was trying to fit in type thing yeah yeah i think cecil says her transformation in from american to a london party girl was a source of amusement to everyone i didn't know she was australian holy crap you didn't know tony Clutt's australian no no i didn't I didn't know that either. Oh, because <laughs> she's a really good fucking actress, man. Mm-hmm. That's what I, I think, said. She's my favorite. I think that's the only movie I've ever seen her in, though. <gasps> How is that possible? Dude. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> she watched United States of Terra. I'm, like, stopping oh, people in the street. I'm like, have you ever watched this? It's so good. <laughs> you didn't even see Hereditary. Shit. Nope, I've never seen oh, that. shit. <laughs> I forgot about that. I love that movie. We did a whole episode on that too. Well, Julie and I did. Um, 
Oh, but here's when we finally meet Kurt Wilde. After his shitty set, Brian is, you know, ready to storm off and they go back outside and Kurt Wilde and the rats are on stage performing. And similar to how the audience wasn't crazy about Brian Slade's nonsense, they're really not digging <laughs> Kurt Wilde's no. crazy just screaming at the audience while ridiculousness. Um, and that's where we get the backstory on Kurt that he, you know, grew up in a trailer park in. Oh yeah. Yeah. in like the Midwest, which is very eggy pop and rumors that he was like raised by wolves and that he, uh, his parents found him quote at the service of his older brother and put him through electric shock therapy to try to fry the fairy out of him. And now he goes completely bonkers every time he hears an electric guitar. Huh. I and didn't pick are, up on that. Yeah, it says it in the, it says it in the movie. <laughs> he goes crazy when he hears electric guitar. Do you remember that? I was nope. so distracted by his penis that I <laughs> I don't think I uh, I don't think I paid much attention to the commentary. <laughs> yeah. I mean that's it's just part of like Kurt Wilde's folklore, not necessarily literally, but that's what Cecil says. Huh. Um, but yeah, that's, it is and that actually is based on um, Lou Reed. That, that that happened to Lou Reed. They his parents put him through electric shock therapy because oh, he was wow. Wow, that scene though, just like the 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 intro to the music, the beginning of the music, and and when Brian is so like distracted by it, you can't. I don't. I don't think I could help feeling the same way. And I'm not even attracted to you and McGregor, but you're just kind of like, oh, mm-hmm. what is going mm-hmm. on here? Look at yeah. this. They show him dripping the oil all over himself, and then yeah, putting and the, the, the glitter top. bomb. <laughs> <laughs> And I would just like to note, because I love Ewan McGregor so much, is in the script, he was just supposed to moon the audience. And it was Ewan who just flopped around his wiener. Who took it the next step. (laughs) Yeah. He, like, channels Jimi Hendrix in that scene or something. I don't know. There's something about him that reminds me of that. Because someone, I can't remember if someone throws a Molotov cocktail or what happens, but, like, someone sets the stage on fire. Yeah. Yeah, I think he does. Yeah, and he's just totally into it, just hopping around. And, and later, Brian says, "You know, like everyone hated him, but he like loved that people were hating him." You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like Kurt, like was thriving off the booze. Like he loved antagonizing the audience, which is very Iggy Pop too, in general. And that was such a good song choice. Mm-hmm. I love that song. Yeah, me too. That is something too that's worthy of noting. Like whenever Brian Slade sings, sometimes it's Jonathan Reese Meyer, sometimes it's other people. Um, mm. Which they never sound the same. Never. Which I think I feel like Jonathan sells it. He's a good lip syncer. Every time he's performing, I buy it, even though it sounds different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also is Bowie like depending on the song Bowie sounds completely different too yeah a lot of people are like that really yeah 
but we see Kurt Wilde perform, we see him sing three times. And every time, not only is it Ewan McGregor, it's Ewan McGregor singing live. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ewan is interesting, too. He can sing well, but that's, like, not the point of his character. He just, he can act through his singing very well. Mm-hmm. Ugh, love him. <laughs> um, what are your feelings on... You're pro Moulin Rouge, right, Jeremy? Oh, yeah. 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 Everyone I know either loves that movie or hates it. There's no in-between. I oftentimes want to watch it um, because when it came out, I watched it like... I didn't I didn't watch it when it first came out in theaters, and I don't remember why. I, I think because I was stuck up, and I'm just like, I don't want to watch Ewan McGregor in a musical. <laughs> and then I watched it for the first time at my old lesbian roommate's house before we were roommates and she was super super butch um so she'd always get us each uh a pint of whiskey anytime we watch movies together (laughs) and i got trashed uh when we were watching moulin rouge for the first time and i ended up crying (laughs) but because she was super duper butch i didn't want her to see me cry so I ran up to her bathroom and she had this old clawfoot bathtub with the, with the curtain around it, you know, well, I didn't, I'd never seen one of those. And I thought it was drunk and thought it was a wall. So I <laughs> leaned on the curtain and I fell into her clawfoot bathtub with the curtain. And I just laid there and cried. Oh, it's such a beautiful movie. <laughs> uh, but I didn't. <laughs> I didn't want her to know because she's so butch, and I didn't want her to think that I was being a, a sissy boy. <laughs> but yeah, I love that movie. <laughs> oh God, I have yet to do an episode on Moulin Rouge. I will at some point. It's one of those movies that's important to me. That like that episode is going to be a whole thing, but. I mom and I did see it in theaters. Um, mom hated it. I loved it. <laughs> like I just because we're not musical people. I know we like music, but she and she and I are like, mm, I'll listen to that soundtrack every day. I don't feel the need to watch yeah. the movie. I probably forced you to listen to that soundtrack some in the car. Yeah, I, I think I was. I think I liked it because I listened to it so much. But yeah. like, I listen to your song all the time. All the time. Didn't didn't weren't you going to sing that at her wedding, Hillary? You asked if we would do it. Oh, we were going to do "Come What May" because I had the sheet oh, music. Come, come What May. May. Yeah. yeah, but it's way too high pitched for my. Yeah. God, you bitches! That would have been epic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't have. I needed like I needed a tenor, and I didn't have one. Besides, well, yeah. no one would have. We wouldn't have had anyone to accompany us on the piano or anything either. Oh, yeah. It would have to be tacky playing it from a cassette tape. Yeah. Anyway. My God. <laughs> what did you say? I just said, my God. We've talked about everything but this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a second ago. I'm like, you're only like a quarter of the way through here. <laughs> We're at like hour four or something. Okay. Um. So after that, we see, we base, that's the moment we see Brian Slade falling in love with Kurt Wilde, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it cuts to Brian's music video for what song is it? I can't remember. 
tumbling yeah. down? No, that's not till the very no. end. Oh, I can't remember. We basically we see Brian. Um, Wait, yeah. no, you're right. Okay. Yeah, no, no, that's the right. That's the right one. I just can't remember what it's called. Oh, that's I love that song. I love that video. Um, my the one. ballad, ballet of Maxwell. Ballad, ballad of Maxwell Demon. Demon. Yeah, there we go. Uh, oh, God, I watched that over and over and over. Where he's all in that really nice Liberace looking suit with the pink hair. Mm-hmm. God, uh, I was that's that, cool, like, that I always remember us watching multiple times. Oh yeah, we watched that over and over. I would just play it over and over again at my house and dance around and be like, "I'm queer." <laughs> <laughs> I remember you made me egg rolls, which was the first time I'd ever had an egg roll. The first time we watched that movie. Uh, I, don't, I can't remember that. Yeah, he has God. that cool, like blue, jeweled, demonic, weird full body paint thing oh yeah that's all glittery mm-hmm. yeah that was actually that was based on makeup um roddy mcdowell played ariel in a production of the tempest and i guess todd haynes saw it and he's like i want that i want exactly the that huh. if, you, if you google roddy mcdowell tempest you'll see that, that exact same thing and yeah. this is one of the instances where it's actually jonathan singing yeah, you can tell. Is it really? Yeah. yeah. I actually thought that was one where it was someone different. Mm-mm. Wow. I, I love his voice in that then. Mm-hmm. Oh, and he's so seductive. Just like the the little looks he gives from the side and stuff. Ooh. I like the walk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The slow shuffle. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. He does a lot in his physicality when he performs that is so interesting. Especially when you remember he's only 19. Like, this was like his first leading role in a major motion picture, and he's incredible. Yeah, that was incredible. And when he's looking in the little house, that's just the best scene ever. I, that That is actually, I still to this day, every now and then watch that, that section, just YouTube mm-hmm. it and watch it. Because I'm always like, he is so fucking beautiful. Mm-hmm. <sighs> <sighs> It just makes me hungry for egg rolls. Huh? Does it? <laughs> <laughs> that is probably my one of the best outfits in the whole movie, though. It you know is. What, you know what we totally passed over and no one commented on? Hmm. Somebody call me Sebastian. <laughs> I was thinking about that the entire time since she mentioned this. And I'm like, are we going to talk about the f- Colin Fart Sebastian? I thought that, oh, no, you're right. That's when, like, the Kurt introduction, wasn't it? Yeah. Somebody <laughs> call me Sebastian. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, man. I don't remember. I don't re- All I remember is Sebastian and farting. <laughs> that's all you need to know yeah I don't remember why we decided to call it that but from that day forward anytime someone would fart they'd say I just Sebastian <laughs> or it, wouldn't, it wasn't even that it would just be like Sebastian <laughs> did you Sebastian <laughs> oh my god oh the sad thing is, this is actually relevant to our experiences of the movie, yeah. anyway. No one else will understand what the fuck we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it's something to us. 
now this is when we see uh, Eddie Izzard as Jerry Devine, who's based on David Bowie's second manager, Tony DeFries. DeFries? DeFries? DeFries. Um, he comes in and basically just scalps <laughs> poor Cecil. Poor Cecil. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm going to make him a huge star and um, fuck you. Can't do shit about it. You should about it. Basically, so, fight me. What are you gonna do? Yeah, he's like, Cecil's like, and how do you manage? How do you propose you're going to do that? And he's like, oh, I'll tell you if you beat me in our wrestling. And poor Cecil's like, uh, what? <laughs> 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 and uh, that's the end of poor Cecil. Um, and he recommends that if Arthur needs any more information after that point. Because at that point, you know, Cecil wasn't in the picture anymore, so he can't really give Arthur any more insight of what happened to Brian after that. So he says to go find Mandy. So Arthur tracks down Tony Collette as Mandy Slade. Um, there's there's an interesting point there, too, the, of foreshadowing where when they first sit down and start talking, you know, Arthur's like, whatever happened to him? She literally says Brian became somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which, of course, we assume she meant figuratively, but later find out she means literally. Um, and it shows when Brian and Mandy first met, they met at the Sombrero Club as well. Um, this is back- 69, I think it said. Yeah, it was like New Year's Eve, 69. Um. At this point, Brian ain't shit. Like, he has to pay a cover even to get into the club. Um, but they start dancing and quickly fall for each other. Uh, we also see Jack Ferry um, and how he's kind of royalty at this club. Um, he's wearing his Oscar Wilde green pin as an earring. Um, and Brian, like latches on immediately and it was like I need to be like that person and he follows Jack to the bathroom and kisses him and very clandestine steals the earring in the process so now uh, Brian has the Oscar Wilde pin God I missed that too that he stole it yeah, yeah. I did as well yeah, when I guess I just there. assumed he passed it <gasps> No, he's, it's hanging, you can see it hanging from Jack's ear, the one that's closest to the camera, and Brian, like, cradles his face when he's kissing him, and he's still... Oh, and then it's gone! And it's gone, yeah. Um, and so, Brian and Mandy get married. And that song, I forget the name of that song, too, I should have had the, the list of the songs up. Um... But he literally sings the lyrics to Mandy, I'll use you, I'll confuse you, and then I'll lose you, lose you, and you still you won't suspect me. Which oh, I was like, moved by your oh, yeah. dream. I know all the words, I don't know what the hell they're called. I think that one's called 2HB. It is, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Dun, I love... Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, that's a great song. I love the line, your cigarette traces a ladder. <laughs> mm-hmm. I used to just like randomly, we'd be riding to work. I would just be like, 
He's got nicotine stains in his eyes. <laughs> Lacey likes the soundtrack. You wouldn't know it for how much she makes fun of it, but she really does. I do. That's no. where I find my joy. You know it. I, it just depends on this. I do it with the uh, Babies on Fire song mm-hmm. uh, all the time. And I can't remember why. It's because there's a, a phrase in there that people say a lot, and then it just pops in your head. You can't help but be like, you, you just can't help but continue it mm-hmm. from the song. Yeah. I love that song. Another, another mm-hmm. instance of Babies on Fire is... Um, John singing too. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love Mandy's dress in that scene when her and Brian first meet. It's like chain mail, basically, and like half see Slappery kind of fit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love it. And then we see their first love scene of them rolling around naked in bed together, which I think Todd Haynes said they like filmed through like a fish tank that was on fire. Like, <laughs> It's very weird and surreal looking, but it's a cool effect. I wonder if they were they weren't dating at the time though, right? Or was that later? I think Todd said that when they filmed that scene they weren't together yet, but they started dating during the process of filming. Because he puts his face in that bush. <laughs> he does. <laughs> like motorboats it. And you can see it. <laughs> and I'm like, damn. No wonder they started dating. She's probably Yeah, like, no doubt. <laughs> Um, let's see. Good thing she didn't, Sebastian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, then we see um, that now under, once Brian got under Jerry Devine's management, he became really successful. He got him on top of the pops, and um, he just kind of blew up after that. And we see a press conference that Brian does where he is talking about his queerness and um, about how him and Mandy are both bisexual. And so, you know, their relationship works out great. He says, another thing that we haven't really pointed out is that throughout the movie dialogue in the film are just Oscar Wilde quotes. Um, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like a lot. (laughs) And there's, I think I believe it's an Oscar Wilde quote where he's like um, talking about how rock and roll is a prostitute and he's being tarted up. Um, so like that's why he wears makeup and there's such a performance artist element to his music. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so cute. You see Arthur at home watching the press conference on TV. Oh, oh, this is where he's like, it's me. Yeah. <laughs> oh. when, when he's talking about, you know, liking boys and Arthur fantasizes that he could hop up and down in front of his parents and be like, that's me, dad, that's me. <laughs> the only part. I that's did that so for sad. this entire movie. That was the whole reason that I liked it. Yeah, I was I like, yes, it's me. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but not. <laughs> so cute. Another thing you'll see that you'll notice is that at this point, once uh, Brian's with Jerry, he has like this little entourage. And it's Jack Ferry's entourage. It's all the same people that you see flocked around Jack Ferry at the Sombrero Club. And now they've just 
migrated over to the new cool thing, which is Brian. Um, and Jerry's plan is to make Brian popular internationally. And so they, you know, they've got to make it big in America. And he tells the little entourage, like, the way to make someone look like a superstar is just to act like they're already a superstar. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of photo shoots and acting extravagantly. And uh, we see the scene in Jerry's office. <laughs> this is one of my favorite scenes because, A, I love when they're hiring poor little, um, what's her name? Oh, the girl that just comes in for, like, a receptionist job or something? Mm. Yeah, she comes in for a clerical job, and they're like, do you have any experience with the wardrobe? And she's like, no. And they're like, great, you're hired. (laughs) (laughs) Shannon. Her name's Shannon. Yeah. But that guy, the guy that's interviewing her, is wearing that great pastel Mickey and Minnie suit. Oh, I love that. I don't remember ever seeing that before today. And I mean, it never stood out to me in my brain anyway. It always stands out to me. I love it. And then there's the one girl who's straight up 100% just like cosplaying Ronald McDonald. <gasps> Thank you. Because I caught just a glimpse of it. And by the time I really got to look, it was gone. And that's exactly what I thought. Yeah. yeah the socks really stick out in my mind. Yeah. Every outfit in that scene is just amazing. Everyone's wearing just the craziest shit. I love in Jerry's office, too, he has that that big, like, portrait of the woman behind him, and it's actually just Eddie Izzard in drag. Oh, where she looks like Marilyn? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's just Eddie. Never knew that. Yeah. I love him. Uh, let's see. So that's the scene where they're like, who do you want to meet? Right? And he's like, yeah. uh, Kurt. He's like, I want to meet Kurt Wilde. I love it. They're like, um, Oh, I, you know, I would want to meet Brando. And the one girl's like, I want to meet Einstein. It's like, uh, sorry, Chicky. He's dead. It's like, Jerry said anyone. <laughs> <laughs> He's not rolling with the smartest crew of people. Nah. Um, then we see them all in a club in... Um, I'm trying not to eat the candy next to me because it'll make a bunch of noise, but it's tempting me. Um, you see them in a club in New York... And they meet Kurt, and he's, you know, rolling. He's just tweaked out of his mind. Um, and then Brian, Kurt, and Jerry are having, like, lunch at a restaurant. And they're kind of trying to propose to Kurt, you know, would you be interested, potentially, in coming to London and, and making a record um, with Brian as a producer? And I think this is almost the dialogue between them in this scene is almost a direct quote from Iggy Pop, where when Bowie wanted to work with Iggy, this is kind of where Iggy Pop was. He was trying to get his act together. Um, <laughs> and while they're talking, he's like, I used to be addicted to heroin. Now I'm on the methadone. Um, Heroin used to be my main man, but now I'm on the methadone, and then maybe now you could be my main man. Something along those lines. My and God. How do I miss things like that? I don't know. Every time I say anything that's happened in this movie, Lacey's been, did that happen? 
It cuts to Brian, and he has little hearts in his eyes, and it cuts to Jerry. And oh, and the money. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Because Jerry can tell that they have chemistry and that they're into each other, and he fully intends on exploiting it for publicity. So um, then it's like the circusy scene, right? Yeah. Basically. We basically see, like, a montage of stuff that... It's the satellite of love scene first. You kind of are oh. seeing... Not only that Kurt, yeah, that Kurt and Brian are falling for each other, but the way that it's getting paraded to the press for attention. Um, oh, before it gets to the circus scene, too, we see the Barbie doll scene. Oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's so weird. I love it. I love Is it. it? Okay, so help. Is it a Barbie head taped to the top with her hair cut? What because if you really look at that scene, I know they're supposed to be necklaces, but it almost looks to me like they took heads and put them on different on male bodies. Well, yeah, I would say you're right because they're where I that, that's the one thing that sticks out to me the most is those weird jeweled collars. Yeah, that are just so randomly in high place. It looks like they have put a like a female head on a man body and like chopped its hair. And now if you look really close. You, if you look close enough, they've had those heads custom made. My guess is they had the heads custom made because they look exactly like Ewan McGregor and John Therese Meyer. And then they just put Whatever. Them those are like, those look just like the Barbies, the, the Rockstar Barbies no, I had. Not, no, they uh, don't. Just, there's no Barbie dolls that have John Therese Meyer's dick sucking lips, okay? I'm telling what? you. They had those custom made. <laughs> I still think it looked like they took dolls and put them together, but I could be wrong. Just to whichever degree, you're right. Yeah, those heads aren't the ones that came with those bodies. Um, but that scene is in there for two reasons. One is it's supposed to illustrate that with the case of most celebrity romances, we never really know the inner workings of what is really going on in that relationship. We always just fill in the blanks as fans. So mm. it's whether it's real people or fictional characters, it's just like what goes on now with, you know, fan fiction and stuff. We create that love story in our mind because we're attracted to it for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also an homage to one of Todd Haynes's earliest films. <laughs> Todd Haynes made a biopic about Karen Carpenter, but all made entirely with Barbie dolls. What? Yeah. And it was very controversial. Everyone's like, this is really serious stuff. You're talking about like a real person and struggling with bulimia and, you know, you have it being acted out by Barbies. That's not cool. Uh, (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's something. It's hard to find, too. I was able to track it down once or twice, but anytime I want to watch it, I can never find it. Um, And then, then we go to the lavish circus press conference. Um, And this actually was inspired by a big press conference that was held by um, Tony DeFries for David Bowie and Lou Reed and Iggy Pop. Which, if it isn't clear yet, Kurt Wilde's character is basically supposed to be a combination of Lou Reed and Iggy Pop. With a little bit of Mick Ronson and Mick Jagger thrown in there. Um, 
And the whole, the Kurt Cobain thing is totally unintentional. <laughs> it just happened to work out that way, actually. It really did. Yeah. Mm. Um, and the whole, this whole scene is almost entirely constructed out of Oscar Wilde quotes. Hmm. Um, which is supposed to just kind of be, illustrate the artifice of the whole thing. Um they had really gone to great lengths to create this image of Brian. That's not a real person. Like no one in the entourage is genuine. Brian's not genuine. Nothing is really genuine. And you kind of get the sense that the only thing that is kind of genuine in this scenario is Brian and Kurt's interest in each other. Um, and that's when we see them kiss for the first time, which is a great scene. I think, I think mm-hmm. I buy it. <laughs> That's what I thought when I watched it this time. I was like, that was really believable. Mm-hmm. They're good actors. Um, and then is Babies on Fire. It's right after the kiss. Yes. Mm-hmm. And this whole time, during this whole next montage, we also see Arthur at home basically jerking it to pictures of this pre- from this Oh, my pre- God. That was the first, that was the scene that I saw the first time when the movie was being advertised on the Sundance channel. And I had never seen anybody jerking off in a mainstream film. And I remember sitting there being like, oh my God, I've got to watch this. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have to get up at like two o'clock in the morning and watch it all shady and stuff? Or Um, at that point in time, I had a TV in my bedroom. Um, But if I'm not mistaken, I think whatever was being played that I think the remote controlled every TV in the house. Yeah. You had to watch what was being watched in the living room. Yeah. So I think I had to stay up late, not to go out in the living room and watch it, but until my parents fell asleep and turned off their TV, that way I could turn it on. And if they did turn it on, I had to pretend to be asleep and be like, Oh, I don't know how it got on that channel. Yeah. I was watching Bugs Bunny, and then I woke up, and some dude was jerking off to a newspaper. I don't know. <laughs> That's a risky game. <laughs> yeah. I, I do not envy that setup. That would have sucked. You know how I remember that fact? Because your mother didn't watch anything but friggin' Lord of the Rings for, like, <laughs> two years. <laughs> I mean, he was pretty hot. I get it. <laughs> um, yeah. That was back guys- in the day. Were you guys familiar with Christian Bale at all when you first saw this movie? No, that was the first movie that I ever saw him in. And I remember I always struggled to determine whether or not I found him to be attractive. And I believe that I ended with um, no. With no. Ugh. Yeah. I yeah. feel bad because I think Christian Bale is like attractive in general, but he's not in this movie. No. <laughs> Which I guess really isn't the intention. I mean, he's supposed to be like an awkward, scrawny teenager, you know? For me, I think it's his hair in this movie, particularly. I like it at the end, but... He looks like... His face looks like Donnie Brokaw's mom's face. (laughs) And, uh... Ellen, Ellen, if you listen to this, it's not... I don't think you're unattractive. It's just you're a woman. And (laughs) not a woman. (laughs) 
Um, Babies on Fire is also the scene where Brian goes down on Kurt's guitar. Yeah. yeah. It's a real thing that David Bowie did to Mick Ronson at a show after their big press conference. Oh, God. Like, I'm... I, you get it. You understand why why Arthur's jerking it. Like this whole montage is so hot. So yeah. yeah, we're just making each other horny through this entire process. <laughs> when I get off here, I'm gonna get out the newspaper and get down on my knees. You know, <laughs> I'm gonna get some MF and egg rolls. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. I'm gonna probably Sebastian and then go order a pizza and just. <laughs> Oh god. Um we also then we see this big orgy going on at in a hotel suite with you know Brian and his wife and his whole entourage and all these groupies and whatnot. Um and we see Kurt and Brian lock eyes across the room and they just kind of like slink off on their own. And um, the next morning and the whole time this is happening, you are watching Shannon watching them, like she's noticing everything that's happening. And the next morning, she's, like, crying to Angie. Not Angie, Mandy. Sorry. Mandy. Um, which I never really understood. It's like, I'm sad because my boss and his co-worker left the orgy to go fuck by themselves. And I have a crush on them. And I'm now I'm sad about it. So I'm going to go to his wife and cry about it. Like, none of it makes sense. <laughs> I, I, I never just always assumed she figured she'd understand the feeling of maybe feeling left out. But I never, I guess I was sitting there when I watched it today trying to think, okay, did, like, the second, I don't know, the second or third time around, I'm like, were they dating? Like, did he, what, did he flirt with her a lot? Like, I don't understand. No, I think she just had a thing for him. And, like. I always thought she was offended by the fact that they were bisexual or or gay or whatever you so want they didn't to choose it. a side maybe no i just thought that she was like offended by that and then she felt weird because she was she was in on this debauchery hmm. and then she was crying about it because didn't uh his wife kind of be like it's okay to be gay or something like that i can't remember the dialogue no what was weird is like she was like trying to make her feel better about it. Like, you know, Brian can do whatever he wants, you know, but then when she says, you know, you know, Brian will, would be absolutely chuffed to know that you were upset about it. And she's like, don't you dare tell Brian. Like, that's where it got weird for me. Cause it's like, who the fuck cares if you know you have a crush on him? Like everybody's fucking everybody. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> yeah. That was a strange scene. Yeah. And that scene was inspired. That's where I, why I said just a little bit of Mick Jagger, because in her book, and once when Angie Bowie went on Joan Rivers' show, she told a little anecdote about coming home to find David and Mick Jagger naked asleep in bed together. Mm. And that line that Mandy says is a direct quote from Angie, where she says, "You know." Seeing two people naked in bed together doesn't, doesn't mean they did anything. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. sex is involved, but it does make for a pretty good case. Um, so when Manny goes to the room to check on them, they're already gone. And they just left a note that says, you know, 
we're gonna have a little mini vacation. We'll see you later. Bye. Um, and then after they go off on their little honeymoon alone, we then see them at the recording studio working on Kurt's new album that Brian's producing. And I always had a trouble with this scene because like we, we see Kurt recording a song and it doesn't sound great, <laughs> but we also don't know what this song is supposed to sound like. So when like everyone in the, in the room is like cringing over it and are like, well, well fuck, he fucked it up. As an audience member, I'm like, well, how the fuck are we supposed to know that? We don't know what the song is supposed to sound like. You know what I mean? Like, all of Kurt's songs, they don't sound the same by any means, but they don't sound polished. Right. No. But uh, as an audience, we're supposed to intimate, I guess, that, like, they've been working on this album forever and it's not going well. Um, and Kurt doesn't take criticism well because all Brian says is just like, you know, if you're going to make a change, you just got to give us a heads up. And he's like, I didn't make any fucking change. <laughs> <laughs> and they do that like hey we're two people fucking so we don't have to say words to communicate they just kind of stare each other down and mm-hmm. then it's to throw a full on temper tantrum <laughs> and you know Jerry scolds Brian is like you know we've spent hours on this album and we've only made a couple cuts and this is a waste of time I can't extend his contract you know this isn't going to work so Brian asks everyone to leave and then we see from Mandy's point of view that Kurt and Brian break up, essentially. They have a fight. Kurt storms off. And that's the end of that collaboration, basically. Um, during this, we also see that when Arthur was in his room jerking it to his, his magazine, his dad burst in and hit him. And scolded him and called him, you know, sick, basically. And so Arthur runs away. He hops on a bus and heads to London and says, peace the fuck out. And he moves in with um, the Flaming Creatures, which is another glam rock band, like an up and coming band in the scene at the time. Um, Two of the members of that of the Flaming Creatures are from the real band Placebo, which is one of my favorite bands. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, this movie ticked a bunch of boxes for me. It was like, it's about David Bowie. I love David Bowie. Had a bunch of actors I liked. It had Placebo in it. That was, it's like did, this movie made for me, but made five years before I actually saw it. Didn't they do 20th Century Boy Placebo? Yeah, they did that cover. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's like my favorite, one of my favorite scenes, the 20th Century Boy, because of the outfits and everything. Yeah. Yeah, there's everybody but Christian Bale looks hot in that scene. (laughs) Everybody but Donnie Brokaw's mom. (laughs) (laughs) They're um, supposed to be kind of a combination of the New York Dolls meets T Rex, kind of. Kind Mm. of. Here's the deal. And. The, it kind of intimates that like it's the breakup that pushes Brian over the edge 
after the breakup, like he doesn't want to finish his tour. He is sick of everything. And that's when he kind of comes up with the assassination thing Mm. to get out of the tour more or less. And um, we find out that Brian didn't tell Mandy that he was going to do it. So that whole day, Mandy thought that he actually had got shot. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine? Yeah, that's fucked up. So needless to say, Brian and Mandy get a divorce. (laughs) But Um, what's funny is, according to the timeline, she still talks to him for like three years. Yeah, like she, yeah, timeline's all weird. Because she says that she hasn't, it's been 10 years since the fake assassination, but when she's meeting with Arthur, she says she hasn't spoken to him for seven years, but she says the last time she saw him was at this Death to Glitter concert that we've seen. Yeah, it it doesn't make any sense. Um, Unless we're just supposed to infer maybe she has something to do with this other guy, like speaking about him as a different person. That all that makes sense. Yeah. Um, after Kurt leaves from working with Brian, Jack Barry picks him up and they go off to Berlin to collaborate together, which again is based on the real timeline of Lou Reed, um, going off to Berlin to make an album. Um, and then Kurt and Jack organizes death to glitter concert it's like a farewell show to the whole scene basically um and we see jack perform perform, and we see the flaming creatures perform that's where we see them 20th century boy and arthur at this point like just kind of lives with them and travels with them he's not in the band or anything but he's like backstage putting on makeup taking mushrooms (laughs) i guess i never put together the fact that that's who he was living with yeah yeah god i suck So while in the 80s, Mandy is talking to Arthur about how the last time she saw Brian was at this concert, Arthur doesn't say anything, but we, the audience, see that Arthur was also at that concert. And we see Kurt Wilde put on this amazing emotional performance. And he and Mandy, like, hug backstage, and they comment on the fact that at the very back of the house, you can see Brian showed up, and he's just kind of slinking around in the background just he watches the Kurt perform and then he left um, oh in his Pharrell hat yeah, <laughs> yeah. I thought no, it's like Carmen Chameleon hat oh I'm getting ahead of myself I was about to say I thought um Arthur and Jack got together but I'm that's a different person so yeah. I'll let you get there yeah <laughs> Did you say Carmen Chameleon? Did you mean Carmen San Diego? <laughs> no, but that works too. <laughs> well, she speaks around the world. Okay, we gotta get back to this shit. <laughs> We're almost done. We're almost at the end. Um, and this is where we see Arthur Romanes that after his performance, him and Kurt Wilde were making eyes at each other backstage. And he follows Kurt out onto the roof. And um, they make sweet, sweet love on the rooftop under they the stage. Yeah. They do. That was the first gay sex scene I ever saw in a movie, and it was terrible. 
Aw, that wasn't terrible. It was so awkward. It was so awkward. Nobody, no, no. <laughs> I agree. They it's they needed awkward. they needed a gay sex coach because that's not how things go down. <laughs> but they filmed it. What I love is they like filmed it from a different rooftop, from like a distance. So you basically just see like faint movement. Yeah, yeah. It was very stylized gay sex, but yeah. I guess it you got the point across. <laughs> yeah. Um. During intercut through all this, even though I didn't mention, you see Arthur also doing more and more research. He's still trying to track track down what happened to Brian. Um, he's doing like name change searches, all this different stuff. And every time he gets to a point, it kind of like hits a wall where it's like this information isn't available or he'll try to call someone like he tried to interview Kurt. And Kurt's like, no, I won't do an interview about this. I can't talk to you about this. Did you feel for this dude? It's like 84. He's on the payphone in the rain. He can't get on the internet and just look this stuff up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And you see when Kurt cuts him off and gets off the phone with him, there are two like mysterious suited figures in the room with him. So you kind of, you get this sense that he couldn't talk to Arthur because he was told he can't speak to Arthur. Yeah. Um, and while he's doing research, he sees that, you know, Brian Slade isn't Brian's real name. His real name is Thomas something or other. And that's when he puts it together. He sees Thomas. And then he realizes that Tommy Stone's assistant is Shannon. And he realizes that Brian turned into Tommy Stone. And Tommy yeah, Stone. What's his last name? I think it is Stone. It's something along those lines. Because I know his dad was like a tile guy. But I yeah. don't remember hearing. I remember hearing Thomas, though. Yeah. Um, and Tommy. The Tommy Stone character is like the antithesis to Brian Slade. Like, he's very mainstream. He's very clean cut. He's very like. He's Joel Osmond. <laughs> he's like buddy buddy with the president. He's like, it's supposed to be kind of a send up to, towards um, Bowie's mid eighties phase where it was all you know. Where he so looks sad. like Grandma Post. <laughs> <laughs> like I understand having to make him look really different so the audience doesn't put it together too soon, but like. That must have been the roughest 10 years for Jonathan <laughs> to turn into that. Mm-hmm. Holy yeah. shit. Because of that, it probably took me three watches of that movie to understand that what they were putting together in the Absolutely. End. Yeah. Yeah, I just imagine <laughs> Brian Slade going to a to like a uh, plastic surgeon. And being just be like, fuck me up, fam. Just like, <laughs> make me look awful. <laughs> Hit me with a sledgehammer. Do something. You know what he looks like? He looks like that guy. Uh, what was the name of that country show that Dolly Parton kind of got famous for being on? Oh, oh my God. yeah. Let me look it up here. I know what you mean. I can't think of it either. Dolly Parton famous on what show? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
Anyway, you can keep going while I look this up because this is I, it'll bug me. Porter so, Wagner. He looks like Porter Wagner. Ah. Yeah. And so um, Arthur runs back to work to tell his boss about this discovery. And the boss is like, oh, no, never mind. We're not even going to run that article. Which is fucked up to begin with. No doubt. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, we need you on the, the Tommy Stone show. So Arthur goes to the concert. And he has like a press pass afterwards. Um, and on his way there too, we even see him on his way down to the subway. He bumps into uh, to Kurt. So we know that him and Kurt are in the same city at the very least. Mm-hmm. Um, but after the Tommy Stone tour or show rather, he goes backstage and he <laughs> asks, sort of asks Tommy slash Brian, you know, what are your, what do you have to say about the recent allegations of your you being associated with Brian Slade, the, you know, gay rock star of the seventies and Shannon cuts that shit off real quick. Right. Reason as in, I just now put it out there. I love that. Yeah, the recent allegations as the ones I'm making right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so needless to say, you know, the press gets cut off and Shannon's like, that's enough questions for today. Bye. Everyone get the fuck out. Um, and you see that, Tommy slash Brian realizes he's been found out and we never get any closure on that storyline. That's just that. I think he looks like, like Martin short inner space or something like that. I don't know. God, it's, awful. <laughs> it's awful looking. It's just, he does look like he loses about 10 years off of his life though. When he asks him that question. Oh yeah. Um, then Arthur goes to a bar nearby after the show. You see this little fangirl come up and ask if he's a part of the tour because she sees his pass. And he's like, no, I'm just a journalist. You know, Do you want this as a, a keepsake? And she's like, oh, yeah, sure. And she's all excited. I always thought that was sweet because, you know, Arthur knows the truth about the situation and he could have been a real jaded asshole if he wanted to be just like, why yeah. are you You want to know something about Tommy Stone? Let me tell you a thing or two. <laughs> it almost seems to me like in that moment, he's just kind of happy that he still has fans that feel that way about him. Like, even though everybody doesn't know, like, he's just kind of like, you know, he's still, he's still got it. He's still got what he wants in a different way. Yeah. He probably sees himself in that girl too. Like I was her once. Yeah. It it means something to look up to this artist when you're young. It, it changes how you grow up. How sad and dark and weird and smelly was that bar? Like, you could smell it when you walked in. Who is with me in the smells? I, I was going to say, what is going on with you? Is everybody like, seeing hey, we'll, okay, we'll the smell. smell. We'll let the, the, the damp, moist, moldy smell go. But it's like, everybody looks like they're at a funeral. Yeah. Nobody's talking. Nobody. It's it's a bar. And they're all just sitting there like something happened. And obviously, well, funerals smell bad. <laughs> <laughs> I think... It was just Todd Haynes trying to nail home. It's like, this is New York in the 80s. You know, this is before the whole. Oh, yeah, because this is like when they're showing the bar. Kurt's talking about how, like, we wanted to change the world and all we changed was ourselves. And they kind of, like, pan across to show how everybody's just kind of, meh. They've yeah, lost the, I mean, the it's mods. A good, it's a good juxtaposition versus, you know, in the 70s. 
everything was fabulous and glittery and everyone, you know, played their a character and everything was shiny and great. And now look how fucking boring and everything is. Mm-hmm. But and then he's like, but is that such a bad thing? Like, is it so terrible that you're not who you used to be? Yeah, because Arthur, ow, ow, sorry, my cat's biting me. Um, <laughs> Arthur runs into Kurt and says, you know, I, it's funny, I tried to get a hold of you earlier this week to talk to you about Brian. And he's like, listen, I can't. He starts to say, I can't talk about this. And Arthur lets him know, I know the truth. You know, it's just very strange. Mm-hmm. And Kurt says, you know, real artists make beautiful things and don't put any of themselves in it in it and arthur says is that what you did he's like no and i think like you were saying arthur's saying that that's better yeah it's better to be your real self and to tell the truth than to be all artifice even if it means you made all this great popular right um yeah, so it's like, do you want something pretty and fake or something gross, but at least real? Which I guess is kind of what Kurt did. He went from something pretty and gross, which is Brian, to something real and down to earth, which was Arthur. Mm-hmm. Do you think during this scene that Kurt recognizes him? No, I don't. Yeah. I think they want you to wonder. But I think he was so drugged out. Like, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it meant. I mean, it meant the world to Arthur. I don't think it meant shit to him. Yeah. I know you're right. I I don't know, though. He gave him the pin. Or maybe, well, maybe that was the prize for figuring out. (laughs) You know. Consolation prize. Well, no, I don't know. I mean, because he figured out, you know. Yeah. What's his name is now Martin Short. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Arthur makes a comment because Kurt is wearing the green pin, which Brian gave to Kurt when they were together. And he offers to give it to Arthur and Arthur declines. And um, then while Arthur's looking away, Kurt drops the pin in Arthur's beer. So once Kurt has said bye, Arthur goes to take a drink and he does a spit take and the pin is in his hand. And that's basically the end of the movie. Um, you forgot tumbling down. Oh yes, <laughs> we didn't talk about my favorite song either. Don't forget the best part. What's your favorite song? You can't guess what my favorite song is. Uh, gosh, I don't know. I what one did we talk about? Whole shebang. Oh um, yeah, that's what he performs on when he goes on top of the pops. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good song. Yeah, it is a good song. Oh, um, yeah, tumbling down is is a weird little interlude cut that's cut in there, and I don't think it's really supposed to mean anything in terms of the actual timeline. It's just like a little farewell performance. The last time we yeah. see Brian, Brian, and he's yeah. like writing. He's Half in that blue makeup, half. I was gonna say, doesn't he like replicate the whole lizardy, glittery guy, or is yeah. it different? No, it's it's pretty much the same, except he has hair this time. Right, he's only like half, half done. Yeah. When I was younger, I used to want that song to play at my wedding when I walked down the aisle. 
Aww. Yeah. Now I don't want to get married. Zeke <laughs> 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 played at my funeral. <laughs> as they I was lowered just going to say, as they well, we'll play it when you walk ground. me down the other aisle, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't get mad when I'm like, he's got nicotine stains <laughs> in his eyes. <laughs> Because that's literally the only part of that song that I really get into, and I don't know why. He can't get mad. He'll be dead. Yeah, I won't be. Say something. I won't be too upset. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so that's basically, that's basically the whole goldmine. You guys have any final thoughts about the movie? Mm, I'm looking to see if I wrote anything else down. No. Just really? 20th century boy. All I wrote, I wrote 20th century boy. Everybody but Bale. I don't know. <laughs> Must have been everybody was hot in that scene but him. I actually entirely I have a real bad. I really want a top hat. Like, I really do. Really no. want a top hat. What were you saying, Jeremy? I was just going to, I completely forgot he was in it until we started talking about it because he's just so forgettable. Oh. <laughs> Poor I, Arthur. No love for Arthur. No. <laughs> yeah, he could have literally been replaced by anybody, and the movie would have been just as wonderful. <laughs> yeah. uh, I like Christian Bale in this movie. I think, and I think that's because Christian Bale has went on to play a lot of assholes, and this is one of the very few Christian Bale roles that's really like sweet and understated. I, I think, yeah, I think you've just got, like, this thing for Lori. I think that's your thing. Well, that that's also true. But <laughs> Lori. He plays Lori in the movie, well, the Little Women movie I was just talking about. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was the only other thing I, I had seen him in before this, I believe, was at Little Women. I don't care what anybody says. I don't know whoever told him he was Batman. <laughs> <laughs> His Batman, I think, is great, except for the voice he puts on as Batman. See, that's it. I can't stand it. I'm like, you need uh, a Halls. <laughs> you need a Ricola. Like, when when Michael Keaton did it, it didn't sound like that. And he sounds like he's really forcing it to me. Oh, really, really bad, yeah. Uh, I, I, that's probably because he has a speech impediment. Uh, and I don't think a lot of people know that, but he does. And you notice it more in his a early lisp? Yeah, he's got a lisp. Mm. Uh, What's that got to do with being all gravelly? Because I think it makes gravelly sound goofy. Oh, okay. Well, no, I, I, well, it might that, but I think he's over, he's overcompensating for that because he's trying to sound super badass, and it's kind of hard to sound super badass when you've got a lisp. Yeah. No offense for anyone with a lisp, but I just think he's. I, I think it's also less noticeable when he's speaking in his natural accent. I think when he's trying to sound American, it's more. More yeah, fun. yeah. It's harder for him to come across, you know, intimidating. Yeah, people do a lot to overcompensate for stuff like that. Yeah. Where are you going with this? I have no idea. <laughs> I knew I could just tell, like there was like a dot, dot, dot. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Well, um, I will do my uh, creator spotlight like I like to do if it's your first time 
listening to the show. A, I'm sorry. And B, I always do a creator spotlight at the end. Um, and today I wanted to shout out the host of the Girls, Guts, and Jallo podcast, Annie Rose Malamet. Um, she is a wonderful critic and podcast host and writer, and I just love her a lot. So look up her and look up Girls, Guts, and Jallo online. She's really kind of my idol when it comes to online content. So what do you guys want to plug? Um, I would like to talk. Okay, so March is colorectal cancer awareness month. I don't know when the next time I'll have this, you know, window to do it. So I want to talk about it now. Um, it's very personal to me. And I just wanted to say that I think that people should have their booty holes looked at before they're 50. Uh, seriously, like 50,000 people die from colorectal cancer, cancer every year. And that's, you know, not quite as many as get diagnosed. Thank God it's 2020. However, most people don't think to get your booty holes looked at until you're about 50. And it's happening for a lot of people a lot sooner than that. And my husband was diagnosed at 42. And he was, you know, way far into it by the time we found it. So if you have stomach pain, if you have blood in your stool, if you just don't feel right, don't think that you're too young to get a colonoscopy and to have things looked at. The worst case scenario is, or, you know, if nothing's wrong, you have to have a colonoscopy, but it'll be all right. No big deal. It's not as big of a deal as ending up in a position like that. And so go to uh, cdc.gov and you can learn about where to go to get colonoscopies. During uh, Awareness Month, there are a lot of places you can go and you can sign up to have stuff done for free if need be. So um, it's just something that I feel strongly about. And I think that you should worry about your booty holes. Men, women, you don't have to be retired to worry about your booty hole. So colonoscopies, people. Awesome. And, and and she forgot to add to make sure it's a professional that's checking out your booty hole. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you can, if you want it to be the second opinion, that's fine. But at least make sure it's there's a, a plaque on the wall. <laughs> and not a not a dental plaque either. Not a dental <laughs> uh, all right. Well, well said, Lacey. Um, thank you guys both for being on the show. I. Lacey, you're welcome back whenever. Jeremy, I hope you come back too. Yeah, that was fun. It was nice to reminisce about days gone by. That's pretty much all we do. Yep. <laughs> um, well, thank you guys for listening as well. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter and on Instagram at something. I do this every time i can never remember my own goddamn <laughs> handle me either um, mine is lace.mason that's it my name and i can't <laughs> you can follow the podcast at weirdos underscore pod on both twitter and on instagram um you can also support the podcast on anchor you can do one-time donations or monthly donations your donations help pay for movie rentals, pay for movie tickets, pay for new equipment that I desperately need, clearly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, any donations, of course, you'll get a shout out on the show and you are you can do recommendations. 
of future topics you want to see on the show as well. And um, I think that's about it. Thanks again. And until the next time, we are the Weirdos, mister. Thank you.